2006, October 10th. Today is Lecture 14, The Revolutions of Nicholas Copernicus. It'll begin in just a moment. Now, yesterday we just we started out by looking at Greek astronomy. We saw the rise of a geocentric system with the Earth fixed and unmoving at the center of the universe and the universe turns overhead. This is not a surprising way to, come, to approach the problem because it is, in fact, the common sense view of the world. We do not sense the orbit of the Earth. We do not sense the rotation of the Earth. We feel as if we are fixed and unmoving, and it is the heavens turning above us. And this view was very persuasive, and it was quant- qu- brought to its highest level of development through the ideas of Aristotle, who was in many ways one of the greatest scholars of antiquity, and eventually led to the development of highly elaborated geocentric systems. We saw the original descriptions using crystalline spheres, all concentric and centered upon the Earth, but that didn't work. After a while, it was found that the observations simply did not agree with the predictions of those models. They they simply did not properly preserve the appearances of what was in the sky. Hipparchus of Nicaea in the second century BC, brought ahead now to its highest form by Claudius Ptolemy in the second century AD, moved the circles off center a bit and built sort of not so much a system of nested spheres, but a system of wheels within wheels, a kind of a cosmic gear works that allowed the planets to go through their motions with the Earth at the center of the system. It was still fixed and unmoving, but the centers of the motion were set off at eccentrics and things like that. A lot of elaborations and complication was thrown in because those elaborations and complications are really what you see in the sky. The planets do appear to make these little loop-de-loop paths across the sky, and you've got to explain it correctly. To do that, you finally elaborated by the time of Claudius Ptolemy in the second century AD, sort of at the height of, of late classical period, had elaborated a beautiful geometric, mathematically motivated model to describe the motions and preserve appearances. And it did a marvelous job of doing that. The only problem with it that bothered some people, at least we think it bothered some people, because there's some writings a little bit later to that effect, was dropping this idea of uniform circular motion. That had been in there pretty much since Plato. It was was a really hard Aristotelian idea. But Ptolemy very quietly ejected it and replaced it with uniform angular motion, this mechanism he called the equant. That bothered people a little bit, but, but if they bothered them a lot, they didn't voice their objections too loudly because in the end of the day, the Ptolemaic system really actually kind of worked. It did provide very accurate predictions, and it was adequate to explain the motions that were observed. Now, maybe this would have gone on further had not history intervened. And so today we want to look now at what happened to Ptolemy's idea and objections to Ptolemy's idea, but not in the second century A.D., We need to fast forward now to the 15th century AD. We'll talk about the work of Nicholas Copernicus, who objected to the equant very strenuously and tried to restore uniform circular motion. But in doing that, he had to resurrect this old idea of Aristarchus of Samos that perhaps maybe not the Earth, but the Sun was at the center of the solar system and the Earth was a moving planet like the other planets. It was a revolutionary idea to set the Earth revolving about the Sun. So the key ideas today is we're going to introduce the Copernican heliocentric system. It has a lot of features that seem now what you would call, well, of course, it's the right answer, more or less, but not quite. We're not quite there yet. The Earth rotates on its axis once a day. That produces the daily motion of rising in the east and setting in the west. The Earth and planets all revolve around the Sun. They all move around in the same general direction. 
And that explains a lot of the annual motions, the motion of the sun along the ecliptic moving from west to east. It explains the motions of the planets in retrograde motion, all in a very nice natural way. Everything, all these complex loop-de-loop phenomena we see are simply an illusion due to the fact that we are watching a moving solar system from the perspective of an also moving Earth. But, and this is something that's often lost in looking at Copernicus, Copernicus didn't go all the way to the modern world. While we see a lot of things recognizable in the heliocentric system, he retained epicycles. He retained this machinery of wheels within wheels. But his goal was to purge the equant from the system, and we'll see how he did that, and restore uniform circular motion. In other words, he was trying to be Aristotelian. But in doing so, he set the stage for the downfall of the Aristotelian view of the world. Now, there were objections raised to the Copernican model, not just simply the cultural and religious objections, but in fact, there were two sort of physical objections that were raised that had to be addressed. The impossibility of a moving Earth, a la Aristotle, and a very important objection, the fact that if the Earth was in motion, you should see an effect known as stellar parallax. And we'll see towards the end of class how that's the most powerful observational objection to a heliocentric system. It has an explanation, but it was not clear that that explanation was the right one at the time of Copernicus and was to remain the primary scientific objection for a couple of centuries after the publication of the model. Now, I'd like to begin with a little quote here. It's actually from... Um, an early king of Spain, actually he was king of Castile, Alfonso X, known as Alfonso X the Wise. If any of you are music majors, you may have come across, perhaps if you studied early music, a piece of work called the Cantigas de Santa Maria. Uh, that's actually from the court of Alfonso X. He was a very uh, intellectual, very active court in the, tw in the 13th century AD. He had, about this time was when Ptolemy's work, the Almagest, and the description of the epicyclic system in its full sort of late classical glory was actually becoming known again in the West, and Alfonso was being instructed by scholars in Spain uh, what the learning, uh, what, the, what the results were, and it, this quote is attributed to him, namely that if, quote, if the Lord Almighty had consulted me before embarking upon the creation, I should have recommended something simpler. Not simply a statement of the ego of Alfonso X, but it is an objection, sort of a philosophical objection to the, to the Ptolemaic system. This complex machinery of wheels within wheels, of equants and epicycles and deference and eccentrics, is a very complicated machinery, demanded by the fact that the motions in the heavens are, at least of the planets, are very complicated looking. The problem is that Ptolemy should have been a point of departure for further work on this, and it would have been had it not been for a couple of changes that had occurred in the culture in which he resided. Ptolemy was really pretty much at the, the height of the wave of Roman civilization. In the 2nd century AD, Rome was at its maximum power, but the cracks were starting to show. Knowledge had ceased to move forward. The, the idea was that, that a lot of the knowledge, especially among the Romans, came from the Greeks. The Romans, in many ways, weren't that imaginative. They, they appropriated the knowledge and they elaborated upon it, but they didn't really build as much very new knowledge upon it. We don't see a lot of brand new things come out of the whole Roman classical period. The whole scholarly tradition at the time was basically to take these works as received knowledge and to sort of carry them forward and elaborate on them a bit. The version of Ptolemy that we have survived to us came to us probably by way of a woman named Hypatia of Alexandria, probably one of the most brilliant mathematicians of the 4th century AD, but 
Even that work was only an elaboration and a gloss on the previous work. They kind of were polishing the burrs, but they were never really moving forward on their own. No new discoveries seemed to come out of it. And we don't really know exactly how much work was done on this because most of it is lost. And the reason it's lost is that about the same time that Hypatia of Alexandria was writing the last commentaries we know of on Ptolemy, other events in her own life suggested the kind of chaos that was coming to bear on the Roman Empire. Hypatia herself was murdered by an angry mob in Alexandria because she was a pagan holding on to some pagan beliefs. She was stirred up by a rather turbulent monk for no other good reason than she was politically getting in the way and therefore was eliminated. And this kind of chaos, this kind of rot had worked its way through the, the Roman Empire until finally in around 400 AD the whole system basically came apart. It absolutely fell apart. Whoops. Now, it's really hard for us in the 21st century to understand the degree of cultural and political and just general chaos that followed the fall of the Roman Empire. It did not go gently into the night. A tremendous amount was lost. Knowledge itself, true facts, are pretty robust, but civilization that cherishes those facts is phenomenally fragile. There are lots of analogies for how much was lost at the fall of the Roman Empire. One of my favorite comes from, from Carl Sagan many years ago in his Cosmos series, who said, to get some idea of this, imagine that you're a scholar in the distant future, that our current civilization has somehow wiped itself out. A plague, a nuclear war, pick, pick your favorite apocalypse. And you've heard of this writer named William Shakespeare. And you've seen a couple of his intact plays have actually survived, say, King John and Coriolanus. And there are fragments of a couple of other of the histories. Maybe you've got a piece of Richard II and Henry VIII. But there are these writings from other people who describe these marvelous plays called Hamlet, Macbeth, and they're lost completely. You don't know them. They did not survive. Imagine, for example, that as a future scholar, you heard there was this guy named Charles Darwin who wrote a book called On the Origin of Species. But his work never survived. All you have describing Darwin is a handful of fundamentalist creationist tracts condemning it. What you would see is Darwin's work through that distorted mirror focusing on a very particular area, but you wouldn't have the work itself. You'd only have the objections to the work. The work of Eratosthenes of Cyrene, who was so central in measuring the size of the earth, one of the fathers of modern geography, one work of his survives, not the essential work on the size of the earth. What we know, the Veritasenes measurement of the size of the earth comes to us from a vague mention by the Roman Strabo in his geography and this book by a guy named Cleomedes, who we don't even know when he lived, maybe the first or the third century AD. And he wrote a book which was largely copying from someone else's book, which happened to be lost. So we only have just transmitted to us in distorted form what actually occurred? We've lost a tremendous amount. Most of what I told you about Greek astronomy yesterday is literally pieced together from fragments and from the handful of intact documents that survived to us. While the Roman Empire fell, most of its documentation fell with it. There were some outposts. Distant Ireland, believe it or not. The monks in distant Ireland actually preserved a lot of texts over a lot of time. But the real preservation was to come through a rather unexpected channel. In around the year 750 AD was the rise of Islam. Muhammad and, and company coming up out of what is now modern Saudi Arabia, Islam began to spread through the Arabic world, which was an outpost of the Roman Empire. And eventually, Islam spread to the area we now call Syria. It's actually up sort of in the whole region around the section of the, of the uh, eastern Mediterranean, the Levant and, and uh, Palestine, all these places. 
Turns out Syria was just far enough away from the chaos that its works were not lost. It's, the great library of Alexandria was burned at least three times, wiping out all the works within it. So imagine the complete destruction of all the written works of the Mediterranean world. And all that survived were a couple of texts and libraries out in distant provincial Syria. And who would come along but Arabic um, armies spreading Islam across the area encountered these works and were fascinated by them. So fascinated that they began to translate them into Arabic. And at the height of Arabic civilization, the center of knowledge in the Western world was the Baghdad Caliphate. So Baghdad, which unfortunately in the year 2006 is a byword for anarchic chaos, was in fact the center of the intellectual world. It was the one place where the ancient Greek knowledge had been preserved, translated into Arabic, and indeed the Arabs themselves, the scholars working in this height of Arabic civilization, began to actually begin to extend that work. The words horizon and zenith are Arabic words because our astronomical knowledge was transmitted through them. If you don't like algebra, better blame the Arabs. Algebra is an Arabic word. It was actually invented by the Arabs. The Greeks and Romans did not know algebra. They did not know a lot of advanced trigonometry. These were all Arabic inventions. The Arabs brought the zero from Hindustan and eventually worked its way into medieval Europe. Before the 11th century, there was no zero in the number system of the Greeks or Romans or the Europeans. So they did a great deal of work in the House of Wisdom in Baghdad, but even the Baghdad Caliphate eventually failed. It gave way to internal political divisions. The Mongols coming in and smashing everything in sight in the 13th century didn't help either. And so there, too, the, the knowledge was robust, but the civilization that cherished it was fragile. And so a lot of that has been lost, and we now think of the Arabic world as fairly backwards technologically. But there was an outpost, and that outpost was at the far western extent of the Islamic spread in Europe, in Spain. So here are some examples of Islamic works from this, from the 11th century. This is an 11th century Iranian astrolabe, very highly developed astronomical technology. They found and adopted and adapted the geocentric system of Ptolemy and others and preserved it and transmitted it forward. Now, because Spain was out far enough away from all the central chaos when the Baghdad Caliphate came unglued, Spanish more Islamic civilization was able to survive and thrive. It came up through, through northern Africa, took over most of the Spanish Iber or the Iberian Peninsula, and established tremendous centers of learning at places like Toledo and Cordoba, and brought with them the translated into Arabic works from the east of Aristotle, Plato, Ptolemy, and all the others. Now about this time, Jewish scholars working in the edges of Islam, because they'd been mostly kicked out of the Christian lands, found a haven in Spain. Knowing Hebrew and knowing some of the languages, Greek and Latin of the area, they were able to actually, with their knowledge of Arabic, begin to translate these works from Arabic back into Latin and Greek. So the original languages of these things were Latin and Greek, They'd been translated into Syriac. The Arabs found the Syriac documents, translated them into classical Arabic, transmitted them around their world. And Jewish scholars working in the boundaries between the Christian and Arab worlds, because they weren't welcome either place, but they were useful because they were pretty smart, translated it into Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. So basically it found its way after a thousand years back in its original language. Europeans trading with the areas, they may not have liked them religiously, but you know, if they got something you want and we got something they want, then pretty soon you kind of get over that and you trade a bit, came into contact with these newly retranslated documents. In around the 12th century AD, 
an interruption of nearly 800 years, Aristotle and Ptolemy became rediscovered in Europe. They managed to transmit their way back into the European continent. By the 13th century, Aristotle and Ptolemy and all the others had gotten such a lodgment on the knowledge of the, of the Europeans that Christian scholars, particularly St. Thomas Aquinas, set about trying to reconcile this old pagan knowledge with Christian dogma and actually wrote quite a number of works trying to reconcile, if you will, the logic of Aristotle with the faith of Christ. And that brought into the entire intellectual world of Europe the old heritage. They began to rediscover what had been lost over 800 years. And it basically hit European civilization like a thunderbolt. You can trace the rise in the 11th through 13th centuries of not only the reintroduction of the old Greek knowledge through Arabic sources, but the rise of the first universities and the beginnings of a scholarly tradition in Europe that wasn't simply just a gloss on Christian dogma because now there was other knowledge they could draw upon for their own, for their own work. A good example of this is the beginnings go back even to the 10th century. Here is a survival of Aristarchus's only surviving work on the distances and sizes of the sun and moon, which had originally been in Arabic, which was finally translated back into its original Greek. This is a beautiful example from the Vatican Library of the kinds of works that were working their way back into the European mind. Now, between the Middle Ages, which is kind of the, the period where the discovery of the old knowledge came about, the rise of the universities, and the period we refer to as the Renaissance, the rebirth, were times of great social and intellectual change in Europe, and they set the stage for a lot of what was happening. Sometimes it isn't enough to know something. The social and cultural conditions have to be ripe for those ideas to take lodgment. And what we see through this period, as I've already mentioned, the rise of the great universities, the rise of the great universities of Paris, Bologna, of Cambridge and Oxford. All of those arose during this, this time of transition. In particular, the invention of spread and printing immensely assisted the spread of this knowledge because it made it easy to transmit the written word across Europe. The other thing that began to fertilize the ground for what was to come was that the spiritual and political authority of the Catholic Church began to be challenged, especially by Protestant reformers, starting in around people like Luther and Calvin and all of those guys. What they were doing is they were breaking a nearly eight-century-old stranglehold in the political order of Europe. What we were seeing was not only arguments about the interpretation of the Christian faith, but you were also seeing the rise of what we now call as nationalism, the idea that different nations with their languages were as important as this old Latin thing. It's hard to remember, but before the Protestant reformers, you could not purchase a Bible in anything other than Latin. And one of the things the Protestants did was translate the Bible into the vernacular languages. German, English, and so forth all come out of this period. We're seeing the rise of the importance of national boundaries, national languages, national leaders. And, of course, national churches kind of folded themselves into the mix. The other piece of the puzzle that sets the ground stage for Copernicus is the fact that in around the year 1470 to 1490, the Portuguese began to have developments not only in navigation but also in shipbuilding technology that allowed them to sail away from the shore and sail out of the Mediterranean in the short runs that people had used for seaborne trade and actually began a series of voyages of discovery. They sailed around Africa into the Indian Ocean. And, of course, in the year 1492, Columbus had sailed to the west and began to encounter places that weren't on any of the maps of the time. These discoveries began to bother the European mind because 
For a few hundred years, since the rediscovery of the works of Aristotle and Plato and all the others, the depth of their knowledge so impressed them that they said, well, this has got to be it. This is, all knowledge is right here. But as they began to explore the world and spread out the, the, the lines of trade, they started seeing contradictions. There were things there that just didn't fit, that weren't in Aristotle. In fact, when Columbus came back in 1493, from a completely new continent that wasn't even in the ancient geographies, people began to ask the unthinkable. If Aristotle and company didn't know about this, what else didn't they know? What of what we know might be wrong? And once you start questioning your assumptions is when you begin to learn. And that brings us to Nicholas Copernicus. Nicholas Copernicus was born in the year 1473 in Torun, Poland. He is claimed by Poland as a, as a native son. He was educated in the great universities of Europe at Krakow, Bologna, and Padua in Italy. He learned mathematics, medicine, law, astronomy, and philosophy. You didn't have just one major. You sort of learned everything. And astronomy was part of the mix. Now, Copernicus came from a church family. His uncle was the bishop of the Frauenberg Cathedral. And so as was quite natural for the time, your uncle did a couple of favors for his nephews and got them jobs. And he became a canon at Frauenberg Cathedral. A canon is kind of in between a person in the Catholic Church. A canon is sort of between a priest and a lay person. You're not, you're not quite actually taking vows, but you kind of are a church person for life. It's a wonderful job. You have a few duties. You basically have secretarial duties. You had a few medical duties. But otherwise, he basically had a job and a place to live and an income for life because of his connections. Now, he was educated at all the best universities of the 15th century. And he was a very, very orthodox, traditional thinker in many ways. The works of his that have survived show him to be very Aristotelian and outlooked. In fact, he is a strict Aristotelian. And he's very conservative compared to contemporaries, for example, like the, the um, humanist scholar Erasmus, is positively a radical by the Copernican point of view. In many ways, Copernicus stands very much at the boundary between the old and the new. The legends sort of make him kind of a bomb-throwing revolutionary of science, and nothing could be further from the truth. Copernicus firmly had, his, had both feet in the old world of the Aristotelian, and it actually opened the door to the new world of, the, of what we now know as the modern understanding of science. And this is going to explain a lot of what he did. But look at the date. Look at the dates here. 1473. Copernicus was 20 years old when Columbus returned from the first voyage to the New World. Columbus didn't know it was a New World. He thought he'd reached the outer islands of Eastern Asia. Eastern Asia. But a lot of people realized that he hadn't even gotten close, that he found something else and something completely different. It's hard to really, again, like try to imagine the degree of disruption at the fall of the Roman Empire, describe the change that was occurring about the time that Copernicus was in his 20s and 30s. Imagine for a moment dessert without chocolate. Imagine Italian food without the tomato. You've never heard of a chili pepper in your life. You've never seen chewing gum or a hammock or a canoe. You've never used the word hurricane and you've never attended a barbecue. Every single one of those, and certainly if you're German or Polish, you've never in your life eaten a potato. Why? because all of those things come from the New World. Chocolate is from Mexico. Chicle is the gum of a tree in Mexico. The tomato is native to Mexico. Imagine Italian food without what it was like before there was a tomato. Right? There's no pizza. There's no, there's no pasta sauce. Nothing. Zip. 
Dessert without chocolate doesn't exist. There's no potatoes anywhere in the European diet. They didn't come from Peru until the next century. And all these things were flooding in upon the European consciousness, and they were utterly and completely unknown. They weren't in the herbaria, they weren't in the medical books, they weren't in nothing. And so people began to ask, well, what didn't they also know? And what of what they know wasn't right? Copernicus stood at this boundary, and he was standing in one way trying to hold off the barbarian horde from the New World, while at the same time trying to reconcile what he knew with the Aristotelian world. Copernicus was bothered by the equant. Copernicus was a hardcore Aristotelian. He believed in uniform circular motion, and he hated the equant, because the equant banished uniform circular motion from the heavens. It replaced it with uniform angular motion. It was an extremely messy expedient. It violated this Aristotelian ideal of uniform circular motion, and Copernicus was offended by it. He felt, and he wrote, literally, that any good system must please the mind as well as preserve appearances. And while he was willing to admit that the Ptolemaic system preserved appearances admirably, although there were still some discrepancies that could be fixed by tuning up, the equant offended his sense of a good internally consistent system. It broke one of the rules to get the job done, and that wasn't right. So Copernicus bothered with this for quite a while, and he came up with the very first comment on this was in the year 1514, when he circulated a very brief pamphlet called the Commentariolus. Basically, it's a commentary upon the Ptolemaic system, describing a new way of describing the motions in the heavens that eliminated the equant and met his criteria of satisfying the mind and preserving the appearances. And he did this by reviving the heliocentric system. Now, the Aristarchan system was completely lost to us, except for people who wrote against it, who didn't like the idea. And in particular, Copernicus tells us that it was on reading a translation of Archimedes' book, The Sand Reckoner, which is one of the survivals from antiquity, that he came across the Aristarchan idea of the sun being at the center of the universe, not the earth, and that the earth was set in motion. Now, he didn't know the details of the Aristarchan system, but he used this as a point of departure and said, maybe this gives us a way to do the calculations without the equant. The features that he had was that the sun, of course, and not the earth is at the center, as I just said, that the earth rotates around its axis, producing the daily motions. Again, nothing, nothing surprising from what we've heard. But that the final piece was that the earth revolves around the sun, producing the annual motions. So that what we see as motion is not the heavens actually moving per se, as we are viewing them from a moving platform. The more complicated motions of the planets are because they too are moving around the sun, and we see them from the perspective of a moving Earth, and that gives rise to this complexity. So therein lies the basis of the system. He took this as his conceptual point of departure, and he began to build a strictly Aristotelian system on top of that, although he himself is guilty of a, of a contradiction. He set the Earth into motion. It took him many years to finally get around to this. He was very reluctant to publish, not because he was afraid of, for example, objection from the church, which had adopted Aristotelian views into, into, within to the, the body of Catholic belief or dogma, but he was afraid of being ridiculed because he knew the, the deficiencies of his own system. He knew that he had actually violated the rules by setting the earth in motion, and he knew that his system was still imperfect, and he was afraid of being ridiculed for that. And It took him until literally his deathbed before the book appeared. The book is entitled in Latin, De Revolutionibus Orbium Celestium. 
translated roughly on the revolutions of the heavenly orbs. It was published in the year 1543. It was published with the full approval and permission of the Roman Catholic Church, who covered all printing presses in the Catholic countries of that time, and Poland was a Catholic country at the time. And in fact, the book was even dedicated to the reigning pope at the time, Pope Paul III. It was not a bestseller. There were probably about a thousand or so copies which were ever printed of the first edition. They quickly diffused their way across Europe, but it was not exactly a page-turner. It's a very long, very difficult Latin treatise. It's full of tables of equinoxes and solstices. There's a lot of geometric details in here to elaborate mathematically what's going on. It did not get as wide a circulation as one would have expected. But to say it wasn't widely circulated or a page-turner of a book was not to say that it never got read. There was an old legend that appeared back in the 18th, 19th century that Copernicus De Revolutionibus was the book that nobody read. Nothing could be further from the truth. If we look at the surviving copies of De Revolutionibus in the 20th century, what we find is that people were scribbling in the margins of those books. They were obviously fascinated by the ideas. They were working their way through it. Copernicus was not a prose stylist by any stretch of the imagination. His ideas got very serious attention, both for and against. So what were those ideas? Well, before we get to that, we have to say that even though this is considered a highly revolutionary book, Copernicus is still clinging to Aristotelian ideas. In detail, the Copernican Copernican system keeps the epicycles, although now the sun rather than the earth is at the center. He also requires uniform circular motion, so he gets rid of the equant. But by getting rid of the equant, he has to add more circles to keep uniform circular motion in play. So as a consequence, his system is very complicated. He had 48 epicycles compared to 40 in the Ptolemaic system of his day, which was the current sort of contender for, the, for competition. But what he did was he banished the equant. The equant is not easy to compute with, whereas uniform circular motion is much easier to compute with. So even though it's got 40 epicycles compared to Ptolemy's, 48 epicycles compared to Ptolemy's 40, the fact that he's gotten rid of the equant made it computationally easier to deal with. In fact, the Copernican system is going to be used as a computational tool in the Gregorian calendar reform, even though people didn't quite buy into the whole sun at the center business. The other thing to remember about this system is it's still only a description. It still only seeks to preserve appearances. It doesn't attempt to explain physically why there are 48 wheels within wheels or how those wheels actually work. It simply uses them as a mathematical tool for getting the answer right without understanding why that answer should be the way it is. Still sitting with one foot in the old age, right? Preserving appearances, uniform circular motion, Aristotelian views, but not explaining physically what's going on. This computer diagram, generated diagram, shows what the actual full Copernican system looked like. This is not a great simplification. In fact, this machinery is very much more complicated. True, the sun is at the center, and we have the circle of Mercury and Venus. Out there, we have the circle of the Earth, and the moon goes around the Earth. But notice the pileup of the circles of the moon required to make the moon motions come out right. And then finally, on three outer orbits are Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. It's a terribly complicated system. But if it's complicated in detail, it's simple in principle. For example, the distinction between inferior and superior planets is now trivially explained as simply the order within the solar system outwards from the sun. The inferior Earth is the third planet from the sun. The inferior planets, Mercury and Venus, are simply those closer to the sun than the Earth. 
and the superior planets, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn, are simply those that are further from the Sun in larger orbits. So there's no need to artificially divide the heavens into planets that behave, have different rules of behavior than the others. It's simply an accident of where the Earth is located in the hierarchy of the six moving bodies. Now the sixth body being the Earth. It also explains this problem of retrograde motion. This is simply a consequence, as I've said before, of mo viewing a moving planet from a moving Earth. By contrast, Ptolemy required the use of epicycles to get the retrograde motion to work. Copernicus still needs epicycles, but not to get the retrograde motion loop, but to simply tune it so you get the changing speed of the planet as it moves around on its orbit. Now, the Earth moves at a slightly different speed from winter to summer. That's why the sun appears to be moving faster or slower in the sky. So Copernicus needed to introduce epicycles to get the speeds to work out right, but not to get the retrograde motion because retrograde motion was simply an illusion of catching up and passing a planet that's moving slower than you. So here's the Ptolemaic system of the day, the Earth at the center. Venus and Mercury are tied to the Sun. That's how you explain their inferiority as planets. Whereas Jupiter, uh, Mars, and Saturn are freed from the Sun. They do not tie to the, are not tied to the Sun in their motion, therefore they are superior planets but all of them are progressively further away from the Earth, as seen in the Ptolemaic system. And then you put all the off-center equants and eccentrics and stuff, and there you get that sort of machinery mess. In the solar system, I've removed the machinery. The inferior planets are simply those that are closer to the Sun than the Earth, and the superior planets, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn, are those that are further away. Notice also, I've now drawn the proper scales of distances in these circles. I've taken out the epicycles just to make it simple to look at. That's another innovation of the Copernican system. You can measure distances, which was something you could not do in the Ptolemaic. Retrograde motion is simply an illusion of the fact that the Earth is closer to the Sun, it's moving at a faster speed, and occasionally catches up to and passes Mars. And of course, it's only going to happen when you catch up to Mars when it's at opposition. So it happens at different times at different places. You'll notice the circles are slightly off-center from each other. If we look at this by stopping the motion and step through, as the Earth catches up with Mars, it eventually passes it by. And so the track that you would project upon the sky, because remember, you're viewing the Mars from the perspective of this moving platform, gives you very naturally the stopping, going backwards, and then moving forwards again as you're on the inside track on the Earth and you see it go retrograde at that point. I don't need an epicycle to do this. All I need to do with the epicycle is, is to make certain that the speeds come out right. But it doesn't, I don't need the epicycle in the same way that Hipparchus needed it to actually reverse the motion as seen from the Earth. It's conceptually a lot simpler. I don't need a lot of detail. It's like, oh, I'm just moving faster and I catch up and pass it. I'm viewing a moving system from within that system on my own position as a self-moving. The other thing that it offered, which was a great advantage, was it allowed you to actually measure the distances to planets. In the Ptolemaic system, in the geocentric system, the distances of the planets from the Earth was completely arbitrary. You simply contrived it to keep the circles from crossing each other. In the Copernican system, the geometry allowed you to actually measure the distances of the planets. The inner planets, you use the geometry of maximum elongation. Now you see why we were so concerned with those configurations. 
For the outer planets, it's a bit more involved, but it's straightforward. You measure the time from opposition to quadrature, and you essentially recover a similar thing that you get for the inner planets, but you measure the distances of the planets in units of the distance of the Earth from the Sun. So let me just sort of illustrate this for an inner, for an uh, inferior planet for Venus. When Venus is at maximum elongation, it makes an angle of about 46 degrees with respect to the Sun. The angle of the Earth-Venus-Sun angle is a right angle, so I've got a right triangle. If I've got a right triangle, I know one of the bases. That base is the distance of the Earth to the Sun. So I know all the other sides from trigonometry. The distance of Venus is this leg. The distance of the Earth is that leg. Do the math. The distance of Venus is simply the side opposite times the sine of the interior angle. So the distance of Venus should be one astronomical unit times the sine of 46 degrees, which is 0.719 AUs. You do a similar trick for Mercury with its 28 degree maximum elongation. You play a much more complicated game with the outer planets using opposition and quadrature, but you still get the same thing. You get the distance in astronomical units. Yeah, question back there. It's the furthest that Venus ever gets from the sun. It's referred to as maximum elongation, right? Because if Venus was here or here, it looks close to the sun in angle on the sky. But you notice Venus never gets further away from the sun. Ptolemy contrived that by fixing the epicycles of Mercury and Venus to, to move with the sun. They were tied to this line of the sun. Copernicus says, nah, it's just geometry. <laughs> How good? Here are Copernicus's numbers from De Revolutionibus for the sizes of the orbits of the planets. Here's the actual numbers from the JPL ephemeris. Pretty good. Pretty good match. Mars is almost exact. Jupiter and Saturn, they're off by a bit. But remember, he's doing naked eye observations and he's assuming as best he can what the angles actually are. In the Ptolemaic system, you cannot measure the size of the solar system. The Copernican system lets you measure the physical size of the heavens. So now we have an example of physical measurements in, in space. We haven't seen this since Aristarchus, who also proposed a heliocentric system. Maybe this was part of the appeal that's in Aristarchus's lost work. Maybe Aristarchus actually measured the solar system back in the second century BC. Sad, but his work is lost. We don't know. We had to wait. 1,700 years for Copernicus to do it because of all the interruptions. Now, the Copernican heliocentric system met with almost immediate opposition. Some of that opposition was cultural. For example, the very first counter-Copernican writings we have come from Luther, Calvin, and Melanchthon. They're the, the sort of the chief agents of the Protestant Revolution, and they claim that the earth moving contradicted the scriptural passage in the book of Joshua about Joshua uh, in the book of the Bible commanding the earth to stand still during a battle. The Catholic Church itself, which of course had its opinions, was initially silent on the matter because it was studying it. It didn't quite know how to fit this in or whether this was just one of these secular novelties that kind of came and went a lot during this period, whether it was really an important challenge to the faith or not. It was a question it really wasn't ready to pick up. Within a century, it most decidedly had to address that question, and we're going to see that later this week. However, these are not the things that bothered Copernicus. Copernicus felt that he was doctrinally okay, just had to work out the details, but he wasn't a theologian, he was just a mathematician. 
The problems that bothered Copernicus were the scientific objections. The first of these is the idea that the Earth is rotating and revolving was an absurdity to an Aristotelian. In trying to replace, oops, in trying to replace the equant with uniform circular motion, Copernicus had to set the Earth in motion. And if you do the math, now that Copernicus knew the size of the, of the Earth, he of course knew that geographically, he knew the size now of the orbit of the Earth approximately. It wasn't that good, but it was good enough. The speeds involved were unimaginable. At the, lo- at the latitude of Columbus, at 40 degrees north, which isn't that far away from, 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 crack, from Poland where, where Copernicus was working, the speed of rotation, the rate at which we are moving around the Earth is 1,280 kilometers per hour because we have to go around the circumference of the 40th latitude of parallel latitude in 24 hours, and that's a long ways. So we've got to be moving fast. But if you think that number was crazy, in order to make it around a circle 150 million kilometers in radius in one year, you have to be moving at 107,000 kilometers per hour in modern units. That's 30 kilometers for every second I've been talking. We've moved 30 kilometers along the Earth's orbit. To an age when the fastest thing you had was a sailing ship, these speeds were utterly unimaginable. And they were a barrier to people getting used to the idea of the moving Earth because they simply couldn't understand how you could get something that big moving at all, much less moving at 107,000 kilometers an hour. The other problem was there was no observational evidence for the orbital motion because of the non-observation of something called stellar parallaxes. They thought the celestial sphere with the stars was closer than it really is. And therefore, if you're over close to one side of the Earth's orbit, you're closer to these stars. And on this part of the orbit, you're far away. So why don't the stars appear brighter when they're in opposition than when they're in conjunction with the sun, like the planets do? And certainly, they didn't see parallaxes. In June, the Earth would be here, looking at a foreground star against the background stars, and maybe see it against this pair of red and blue stars down here. But six months later, in December, the Earth is here, that star will have appeared to move. Hold your hand out at arm's length, put up your thumb, close one eye, cover my face, and then blink your eyes back and forth. Looks like your thumb is moving back and forth as you change your perspective from one side of your head to another. That's parallax. This parallax should have been observed if the stars were really close. Copernicus argued the reason was the stars were really far away. But that was an unresolved problem, and it was the sticky point for accepting the Copernican theory. The Copernican theory was deeply flawed. It had its problems. Copernicus 